good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. And good morning to you. I'm Kathy Kayla coming at you from a very, very chilly Johannesburg morning. Today is the 30th of May, 2022. Thank you so much to Diskem for this Diskem Medical Monday. The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime last year, June, published a report called the World Drug Report 2021. And according to the report, around 275 million people use drugs worldwide in the last year. That's obviously the preceding year. While over 36 million people suffered from drug use disorders. And that's according to the 2021 World Drug Report. Absolutely staggering stats. Can't even get our head around it. 275 million people around the world using drugs. On Friday... At the age of 51, I went into my first drug house. And this is actually part of something else that we're doing on the, the station where we're following up with communities and specifically suburban areas that have become dilapidated, where crime is rife and drugs is often part of that. So uh, a colleague and I went to a suburb called Windsor and there went into an abandoned house which has subsequently become a drug house. All the people living there are living with addictions. One young man, well young man, he must be in his 30s, told us that he had two degrees, but his heroin addiction completely took over his life. There's such tragedy in that. And I thought, you know what, forewarned is forearmed. Drugs today, though, are not like they used to be decades ago. Today you're talking about designer drugs, that you are hooked from the first hit. You're talking about Dacha, that is, you know, a lot of people, according to this report as well, as the United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime Drug Report 2021 actually backs it up and says that a lot of young people undermine how serious marijuana, Dacha or Dacha is. Especially today, but you know what, I'm not the expert in this. So let's actually speak to the expert. And joining me this morning is Dan Wolf. Dan Wolf is a chief psychologist and director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Center. Good morning, Dan. How are you? Thank you Dan so Wolf much version for two. having me on the show. And good morning. <laughs> good morning. Thank you so much. Dan, what are you seeing in the Johannesburg community? Because obviously being on the ground and being, you know, that first face that people who are wanting to recover, you're the face of recovery. What are you seeing in terms of trends, drug trends in Johannesburg? Well, uh, you, you know, one uh, sometimes anticipates that the trends are going to be quite uh, astounding in terms of a broad spectrum of drugs that you've never heard of. But in reality, the main drugs that are treated in the more sophisticated treatment centers are primarily alcohol, cannabis, uh, cocaine, and cat are the stimulants. And then one cannot overlook prescription meds. 
and uh, you know that that's the the tranquilizers the benzodiazepines and uh, and of course uh, sleep medication so you know those are that's the primary focus of course there's crystal meth which is a stimulant and has some very problematic side effects etc but you know the kind of designer drugs that uh, that one may be less familiar with are probably less in the forefront that being said i think you raised a very important point that people uh, sometimes underestimate uh, the tremendous dangers of cannabis use and the tremendous dangers of alcohol use well let's talk about let's talk about that firstly because we're talking about drugs alcohol is alcohol classified as a drug it's not really is it certainly in the context of uh, the 12 step program and narcotics anonymous preamble uh, emphasizes that alcohol is a, is a drug what we're talking about is mood altering altering substances that being said, you know, one can't confuse uh, someone who who has one drink uh, a week to quench their thirst uh, or on a auspicious occasion with uh, someone who uses alcohol uh, daily and it uh, impacts negatively on their function. So, you know, one has to be quite clear as to the parameters of substance use. All right, so I want to focus on each one of those, the alcohol, the cocaine, the cat, the cannabis, and the opioid, because that's what you're seeing. Let's talk about alcohol. How much is too much? Okay, so uh, it's it's an interesting uh, phenomena that we, we do live in a society that normalizes alcohol use. And so our perception of what is too much uh, may be negatively affected by the norms of our society. But I think a, a conservative approach to the question would be that once a person develops what we refer to as a pathological relationship with the substance and their relationship with the substance is impacting on their functionality, not only at work, but on their capacity within their family environment. And that relationship is becoming the primary relationship in the person's life. That that is certainly too much. So I'm staying away from the gray areas where alcohol is potentially not allowing the person to actualize their potential because uh, you know that 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 certainly is a personal choice. You know, maybe not everyone wants to actualize their potential. Maybe some people, you know, have accepted mediocrity, and so some level of substance abuse in that equation could perhaps be accommodated. But when alcohol becomes the primary relationship in the person's life, that is clearly when the scenario and the, the disease of addiction becomes relevant. And that, of course, is a progressive situation and, uh, uh, and would then, at that point, require treatment. Dan, I'm going to be very unpopular for saying this, but I imagine that yes. anybody who is a recovering alcoholic in our community, especially if it's a man, is going to have a very hard time especially if he's a regular shul goer. You know, you go to shul, there's a kiddush after shul, and you have to have, and the rabbi says, no, but you must have, and he pours you half a glass of scotch. 
What is that? And how do we get away from that as a community? So my, my view on that, Kathy, is people create their own reality. And uh, that individual is not a victim. You know, it's, it's not a difficult thing to communicate in a way in which you become clearly understood. And, uh, you know, the person who sits there and is the victim of the insensitive uh, shoe-goers or fellow members, that, uh, that I don't buy. You know, my view is uh, he needs to either not be there because, you know, it's not a travesty uh, to not be sitting around. Uh, or alternatively, to communicate in a way. I, I've uh, stopped drinking. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Have alcohol you ever been doesn't in a... agree with me. He, he could say whatever he needs to say, but uh, he, uh, it's pretty clear that uh, he needs to regard himself as protecting his own, uh, uh, his own life and the life of his family. All right. So just before we get we get on to other topics, Dan, have you ever been at a party and said to somebody, I don't drink or I'm on a diet? The first thing that the other person's going to do is offer you a drink or try and stop you with cake. Stop. So is what, that the right what's word? What's interesting <laughs> about what what uh, what's interesting about what you're saying, Kathy, is there's uh, you you actually touching on a psychological phenomenon. That person is not trying to stoop you with cake. They're not trying to give you a drink. They're trying to connect to you. And the way in which they connect is through eating together, drinking together. And so that individual has to brace themselves. He needs to have in his own mind that I'm here as an individual and I'm going to retain my independence if I need to do that. And that may mean being a bit lonely, being a bit unpopular, because in that moment when he says, I do not drink, he is disconnecting. And in doing that, he is retaining his independence. And so it may not be a well-oiled moment for either of those people. But in essence, I think if the person understands what he's doing, it can be a very empowering experience. Yeah, and maybe saying, you know, if you want to connect with me, support me. Support the fact that I don't drink. Yeah, yeah. Support the fact that uh, whatever. I'm Whatever. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. And it may not be a comfortable scenario. You know, I think that that's part of uh, getting well and moving forward is not just going with the flow. You know, there, I think there's that saying about dead fish go with the flow. You know, the reality is that. that the person is... Uh, the person is trying to live consciously and move forward and achieve, you know, the, the process of recovery. And this is why uh, the late Rabbi Tversky made a name for himself in the world of recovery is recovery is a very much a spiritual process. And when we talk about a spiritual process, it means a person doing what is human. And that requires the individual to make decisions and to make constructive decisions, as opposed to the person who is living unconsciously and being dictated subconsciously to whatever is going on in their environment. I'm Kathy Kayla. This is Diskem Medical Monday, coming at you live this Monday morning, the 30th of May. Phew, almost June, huh?
crazy, crazy. How did we get here day by day, apparently? And uh, if you read the United Nations report on drug addiction globally, that could also be a reason how we got here. <laughs> Anyhow, if you want to get in touch with me, if you've got any questions, please get in touch. You can send me a text on 34519. That is the SMS line, 34519. You can also send me a telegram message on 061-895-1019. My guest this morning is Dan Wolf. He is the Chief Psychologist and Director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Centres. When I, I want to actually speak to Dan and find out, we've spoken about alcohol, I want to talk to him about cocaine. That's up next. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kaler and this is Discam Medical Monday. My guest this morning is Dan Wolf. He's a chief psychologist and director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Centers. We're talking about drug addiction and recovery. The reason that we're talking about it now is that the pandemic, as the world starts coming out of the pandemic, we can look back and say, well, these were the trends. A big trend during the pandemic was drug use and how it has increased. Dan, can we, we've spoken about alcohol. Can we talk about cocaine? How prevalent is it? Or cocaine addiction? Yeah, so... Uh if we reflect back to the early 90s, cocaine was a foreign substance in South Africa. Dan, sorry, something's happened to your sound. I'm not quite sure. There's like a bumping noise. Okay, let's try it again. Is that better now? Oh, perfect. Thank you. Okay. So if one reflects back to the early 90s, cocaine was quite a foreign substance in South Africa. It wasn't inaccessible but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't easily accessible. And the reason for that is the, the conservative government at the time were doing some things right. And uh, I suppose the, the influx of drugs into the country was in some way controlled. That being said, over the last uh, 20 to 30 years, Cocaine has, been, uh, has become very accept, uh, uh, accessible and I would um, almost uh, say acceptable in certain uh, circles. Now, what is always unacceptable is to become an incapacitated, highly compromised, dysfunctional cocaine addict. But drugs for recreational purposes, uh, well, certain drugs for recreational purposes and others as performance enhancers uh, have become acceptable. And, uh, again, you know, one never knows who is going to be vulnerable. Who is the person that chooses to use the substance for recreational purposes in what appears to be a sophisticated environment, whether it's a work after party or in a social context with friends, and then unfortunately sees the benefits that the substance appears to have for them. Now, you know, that's, why, that's how dependence uh, begins, when the substance actually appears to have some beneficial effects for the person using them. Uh, either on a level of performance, either on a social level, and then things escalate. So now I'm not talking about cocaine specifically, other than uh, you can imagine it's a stimulant 
it allows people to uh, uh, it would certainly allow someone who's struggling on an interpersonal level may lack confidence to have more confidence etc uh, someone who's reserved to become more extroverted and these are some of the in initial benefits but as they say in the 12-step fellowship addiction is a scenario where one's best friend uh, soon becomes their worst enemy. And that's when, you know, the, it's it's no longer the, the addict abusing the drug. It's the drug abusing the addict. And uh, I think that that kind of perspective has to be held in mind. Is there really such thing as an addictive personality? Uh, personally, uh, my personal view is it's very hard to find someone who's not an addictive personality. You know, the question is, uh, to what extent is their addictive behavior or their unconscious behavior compromising their functionality? But if we look at the world we're living in today, uh, you know, with technology, with uh, delicious food, with fast food, uh, with a broad spectrum of substances, uh, uh, everyone is is struggling to achieve balance and moderation. And uh, I suppose uh, uh, that's that's not. Uh, so what I'm really saying is the concept of addiction is not that difficult to relate to. We live in a country. In other words, your head's telling your head's telling you to do one thing, and you're drawn in the opposite direction. Uh, uh, who struggles to relate to that? I'm sure nobody. <laughs> Dan, we live in a country. I mean, South Africa. They're giving away land for cannabis growth, so it's starting the whole cannabis industry or the cannabinoids or whatever they're called. Can we just talk a little bit about? Dacha or cannabis, as it's known. So it's fascinating, you know, because uh, I suppose, look, South Africa, as far as cannabis use, has been a hot spot for uh, for hundreds of years. But one has to appreciate that the THC concentration in cannabis today is a whole lot more substantial than what it was 10, 20 years ago. That's the one point. What we're seeing a lot, uh, two factors. What we're seeing a lot is individuals developing what we refer to is, uh, as a cannabis-induced psychosis. Uh, and that's not someone anyone necessarily signs up for when they up a tree with two friends smoking a joint for the first time. But that's a level of mental illness that becomes deeply entrenched and sometimes inflexible. Uh, the other factor <coughs> in terms of cannabis use becoming so uh, significant and normalized in our society is the concern in terms of it uh, impacting people's inability to sustain commitments and to actualize their potential. And that's where cannabis needs to be understood as a potentially danger, uh, a potentially very dangerous drug because people are not pawning their parents' DVD player to go and buy weed, but certainly they're dropping out of varsity 
and uh, may very often uh, not uh, not perform optimally in terms of achieving the goals and the expectations that they have for themselves. So interesting. Um, Jenna, nice to hear from you, Jenna. Thank you so much. Jenna's uh, sent through a comment saying she begs to differ. This is referring to cocaine. She says, I was offered cocaine to help me study by a psychology lecturer in the early 70s, and nearly everyone who was middle to top management in advertising industry were using it. It was considered a symbol of wealth and success. And I think that it's, I think, Jenna, that it's the same with the financial industry. You know, there are certain companies that actually have a reputation that when they have parties, you know, the trade goes around. Yeah. So what's your thought on that, Dan? Yeah, look, Jenna's uh, obviously a hippie from the 60s, you know, (laughs) so she knows this. I was still in nappies in those days. So, uh, yeah. All right. So you may know a lot better than me. If you've got any questions, any comments, join the conversation. I'm Kathy Kayla. He's our expert. His name's Dan Wolf, and uh, we're talking about drugs and drug addiction, drug addiction recovery. You're welcome to get in touch. Three four five one nine is the text line, or zero six one eight nine five one zero one nine. Coming up, I want to talk about opioids. I want to talk about. You know, we can continue the conversation with cannabis because also the drugs of today are not much stronger than the drugs of yesteryear. Is that true, Dan? Uh, Yes and no. I mean, I think that there are some substances that uh, are are novel, but on the whole, the substances are are, are very much the same. And, uh, And probably the reason people using substances yeah, perhaps we're less resilient. Perhaps we are uh, are not prepared to to tolerate a level of discomfort that's required to move in the right direction. I'm speaking to Dan Wolf, and this is Discam Medical Monday. We're talking about drug addiction and recovery. Dan is the chief psychologist and director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Centre. If you've got any questions, three four five one nine. That's a text line. Or 061-895-1019. I'm Kathy Kayla and this is 101.9 Chai FM. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. I'm Kathy Kayla and thank you so much for joining me. This is Monday the 30th of May. If you would like to get in touch from a chilly Johannesburg or from anywhere in the world actually, you can send me a text message if you would like to join the conversation that I'm having with Dan Wolf then send me either text locally on 34519 or via Telegram if you have the app. And that number is 061-895-1019. Dan Wolf is the Chief Psychologist and Director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Centers. While we are reconnecting with him, because unfortunately the connection dropped, I just want to go through... The United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, they published a drug report last year in June. And according to the report, listen to these stats, around 275 million people use drugs worldwide in the last year. That's narcotics, narcotic drugs, not medication drugs. While over 36 million people suffered from drug use disorders and uh, it's absolutely unbelievable. The report further notes that in the last 24 years, cannabis potency 
has increased by as much as four times in parts of the world. Even as the percentage of adolescents who perceived the drugs as harmful fell by as much as 40%. So cannabis, dacha, is four times as potent as it used to be. That's very scary, and it's not a surprise that people are going in, you know, they're seeing, especially with young people, you can use once or twice, and then you have this uh, this episode. It's almost, uh, I can't remember the the term that Dan, that Dan used for it. Uh, but you have like this mental, oh, psychotic, psychosis. It's a drug-induced psychosis. It's absolutely terrifying. I've seen it. Something else that I remember learning about, look, understand that I, I don't know the laws about whether it's legal in South Africa or it's not legal, partly because I haven't needed to. But uh, Dan probably does know whether we're allowed to or whether we aren't allowed to. But one of the trends, and this is a huge dangerous area, is that cannabis is being mixed with heroin and it forms a substance called nyope, which is very reasonable, but highly, highly addictive. Dan Wolf joins us again, and Dan is the Chief Psychologist and Director at Heart and House Addiction and Mental Health Treatment Centers. Very, very hard to break such an addiction, especially when Dacha in a society like ours is considered so normal. Somehow we've normalized it, Dan. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, I, I think that uh, what needs to be understood is that there are people who use substances and their functionality is not compromised. And, uh, you know, t- uh, they, they're making a choice. Or perhaps uh, it's just uh, um, something that they have become accustomed to and it's a way of being. But certainly breaking an addiction when it escalates and interferes with your functionality as a human being, it's not so much that it's, it's hard to do, but the extent of the effort required, the kind of crisis that brings a person into a treatment center uh, that allows them to then address the dysfunctionality that has manifested, that, uh, that's challenging. It's not only challenging on the individual, but it's challenging on the, the broader social structure, on the family, uh, the wife, the children, the parents. And I think that that's what's important. Very often, once the person comes into treatment, it may just make sense to them. They, you know, then then the the real work going forward is about recreating themselves. They don't spend their time in treatment talking about drugs and alcohol, or you know, the withdrawal process, if there is one, uh, may be quite brief. So I think it's quite different to you know what people may think. Um, you know, comparing coming off substances or uh, breaking a cocaine addiction uh, where the model of abstinence applies quite effectively is it may be quite different to uh, someone who's struggling to, lo- uh, to lose five kilos and uh, on a day-to-day basis is sort of having this fight as to whether they kind of stick to their diet or not. It's quite a different 
set of circumstances. According to this United Nations Drug Report 2021, Opioids continue to account for the largest burden of disease attributed to drug use. Are we seeing, we know, we know about this situation in the United States. It's not a secret, you know, opioid addiction. A lot of people becoming addicted through prescription medications for pain addiction. What is the situation with opioid addiction here in South Africa? So, uh, look, first of all, when you talk about opioid addictions, just to bring that close to home, we're talking about, uh, I mean, obviously there, there's uh, the street drugs, heroin, uh, et cetera, but then uh, the, the, the most common opioids that people become addicted to are the pills like uh, Stopane, Pain Stop, where there is a high codeine content, various cough mixtures, Fenzadol, et cetera. Now, what people don't realize when they come into treatment because they've been taking 20, 30, up uh, 60 uh, stopane a day is that they are in the same category in terms of the withdrawal process as the heroin addicts. And the way in which their, uh, their addiction plays out may be quite different because they've been frequenting doctors and pharmacies as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, the kind of shady parts of the city. However, you know, the, the, the challenge on a, a pure organic substance level is very much the same and is widespread and extensive and, uh, yeah, deeply rooted. I think the prescription meds, are, uh, present their own unique set of challenges very often in terms of the individual framing themselves as an addict. Look, when they've been sort of uh, uh, forging scripts uh, and acting dysfunctionally and illegally, it may be easier for the person to conceptualize, but it is confusing that the dealer is a pharmacist or a doctor and uh, the, the, the condition itself that resulted in the initial substance use may in fact be a, le a legitimate uh, physical illness. In fact, uh, as we know, that codeine is an analgesic, it's a, it's a painkiller and the person may have initially been suffering from headaches, backaches, whatever it may be, they come into treatment, it's not an easy process because you're then communicating to a person that part of recovery is going to involve tolerating the pain. And, uh, and when someone has been living, not so much, you know, what you find with uh, codeine addicts is they don't take the, the pills when they get a headache. You've got people uh, who uh, take pills in anticipation of a headache. And that's quite a frightening phenomenon because every time they do that, they're communicating a very strong message to themselves that any amount of pain is intolerable. So I am now going to be on this kind of hyper-defensive mission of obliterating any potential sign of discomfort that starts to surface. 
And these patients are often very medication-seeking and they uh, find it find great difficulty in developing the, the kind of resilience to move forward in recovery. You know, it's just listening to how you're speaking, Dan, many years ago, I, I suffered with a severe pain condition and I went to see my doctor and he gave me a prescription for medication, which is no longer available on the market. And... Uh, I took it once, and that feeling of comfort that it puts you into, Mm. there's no edges on anything. Everything is soft, and everything is fine. And I actually phoned him, and I said, please mark my file. I'm never to receive this again. Highly, highly, highily addictive. You were back in the the womb. Absolutely. Comfortable. It was just, it was the most glorious feeling. I flushed them. But I tell you something, if I hadn't done that, I can tell you now. If I'd had opportunity to have them again, I would have been an addict for the rest of my life. And that's how subtle it is. You just don't know. And we're seeing Mm. in the United States with these pain medications, people having back back pains and all these sorts of things. It's it's just, it's a pandemic there. Well, not a pandemic. It's an epidemic. Sure, sure. Yeah. So how do we – I know that overseas they have methadone clinics to try and get people off their addictions. Do we have anything of the sort here? So what you're referring to, Cathy, is something called, uh, you know, the, the methadone maintenance is – a maintenance treatment is something quite different to uh, what the philosophy of treatment has traditionally been in South Africa. In South Africa, there's been a strong focus on abstinence. In other words, we use a substance, if a person is an opiate addict, you may use methadone as a replacement therapy for a brief period of time to bring the person off the, uh, the heroin or the codeine and then encourage commitment to reality but uh, what what seemed to be very prevalent uh, internationally and it's becoming more of a thing today is to say to the person listen you know you've been using heroin or opiate codeine for the last 20 years we don't want you mugging old woman or using dirty needles or whatever it may be so we are now going to put you on a methadone maintenance program and that that potentially can be uh, can be easier on a society level in terms of bringing down crime and those kind of issues. However, for the individual, I think the sad or the downside of it is you really kind of dropping your expectations of this individual going forward because you're resigning yourself to the fact that this person is uh, not capable of functioning without the substance, whether it's for two years, whether it's for the rest of the person's life. When you're dealing with, you know, older people, it's less tragic. But when you see a, a young, healthy, talented individual put on a methadone maintenance program who has all their their physical health and resources available to them, uh, one can't help uh, but thinking, isn't there uh, a way that we can empower this individual 
uh, to acknowledge uh, what capacity they, they, they have as a human being and not to be giving away their power to another substance, which obviously is less than optimal. Mike Lubo weighing in on the conversation. He's joining our conversation. So can you actually, if you would like to, 34519 is the text line or 0618951019. My guest is Dan Wolf. He's a chief psychologist at, um, at Houghton House. And we've been talking about drugs and drug addiction and specifically about recovery. We're going to be speaking about that next. But Mike Lubo weighing in, he says, after sitting in touch in tough love meetings for six years, I differ in that drug addiction has not grown because of COVID. It's always been there. Nobody said that it wasn't there, Mike, but according to this United Nations report, it has grown up to 40% in the United States, 20%. Um, in other in Europe, I think, and I uh, can't remember what the UK stat was. Uh, secondly, addiction through gateway cannabis goes on. The, the SMS goes on. Secondly, through secondly addiction addiction through gateway cannabis use is skyrocketing because it's being grown hydroponically with cocaine laced water. New unit users are almost instant addicts. The dealers then sell a more addictive drug, and that's uh, that's what we were talking about. That's Nyope, isn't it? Isn't Nyope? Um, well, no, uh, uh, Nyope is, uh, is a mixture between cannabis and heroin. And what's interesting is there used to be a drug which is less frequently used in South Africa called mandrats or buttons, which was quite common in some of the impoverished colored communities. And Nyope seems to have almost uh, replaced you know, it's uh, for every kind of uh, mandrax or buttons user today, there's a nyopi addict. And so, yeah, that, that is certainly part of the trend because mandrax itself was also mixed with cannabis. Dan, I want to talk about recovery. How do you know when you have so-called hit rock bottom? Yeah, so look, uh, it's and do you have to be there? Concept. Do you have to be at rock bottom no. before you before you get to recover? So a lot of people would would say yes. My personal perspective is uh, the more the person has to live for, the better the prognosis. And so, unfortunately, when people uh, when there isn't early intervention and the individual moves towards rock bottom, they may start moving towards becoming a poor prognosis individual. And, uh, you know, I've seen that. I've seen people who at some point were very talented and capable and had a huge opportunity and their addiction was never arrested and things became uh, increasingly more and more out of control. Uh, Look, it's it's, uh, something that has to be assessed from individual to individual and family to family. But certainly, if I look at, uh, I've seen many effective interventions where the family hits their rock bottom. And the family's rock bottom is going to be a whole lot higher depending on the intensity of their relationship with the individual concerned. And then they can create a crisis that facilitates the individual going into treatment. Would that be an intervention? Yes. So that would be, simply put, a very difficult 
difficult conversation or an intervention or some kind of very strong message that communicates to the individual concerned, this is where we stop and this is where you begin. And uh, they are at that point prepared to uh, not to be held hostage and to do whatever it takes, even if it involves involving uh, legal mechanisms to facilitate the individual going into treatment. But uh, really what they uh, very often do is use whatever leverage they do have to, to, uh, uh, to uh, encourage the person to come into treatment. And it very often is against the will of the patient. And why I'm emphasizing that is because the research, uh, the research indicates that there isn't a direct correlation between the initial willingness of the person and their success in recovery. There are many people who come into treatment centers resistantly and uh, while they there develop the, the requisite insight into themselves to be able to move forward constructively. Dan, an anonymous message has just come through. It says, my son says if people don't want to stop, no amount of rehab will help. Fortunately, he wanted to stop. And that really gets back to what you're saying, is that the bigger the incentive, you know, the more that they have going for them, the better the prognosis. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's true. Uh, there are some... Uh, individuals who, uh, you know, when you're looking at a treatment center, and particularly today, there are many similarities from one individual to the next, but there are very often significant differences as well. And so, uh, you know, uh, there may be there individuals who appear to uh, to never want to stop they are just sort of invested in this world of dysfunction. And uh, what needs to be understood is that uh, individual may be underpinned, uh, to use that word, by a very significant dual diagnosis. They may have a deeply entrenched, inflexible uh, personality disorder accompanied by a mood disorder, and for that reason, uh, Houghton House has, has, uh, is making great efforts to ensure that the approach to treatment is becoming increasingly more and more sophisticated. Because although, you know, the individual uh, may appear to be very resistant, uh, there may be underlying issues that need to be addressed. How does rehab work? Does everyone who wants to get off a drug or alcohol or whatever addiction it is have to go into rehab? Or can you can you get off it yourself? Okay. Yeah, so I, th- I think what's interesting is that there, there isn't a one-size-fits-all scenario. And there were there certainly are people who will say that this is not an exact science. And I've uh, met many people who uh, who have uh, managed to come off uh, whatever substance they're using or to get well in the context of an outpatient program. 
The question is when one is choosing a treatment program, if you're trying to identify something, whether it's going to be effective or not, uh, one has to think very carefully as to what is the patient's motivation. Uh, are they choosing to do an outpatient program to preserve their ego or alternatively to duck and dive and to conceal the extent of their dysfunction? Or is there justifiable reason to uh, engage in that specific program? And the same goes uh, it goes for inpatient treatment as well. So, uh, you know, there's a broad spectrum of options. The, uh, the, uh, the, the real objective in terms of treating addiction is to dismantle denial and to develop insight. And I think that that is those two parts of the equation are very important to, to understand because they 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 both work on multiple levels i think that that's brilliant advice for life dan dismantle denial and develop insight and on that note that's yep. where we are going to leave it because we are completely out of time thank you so much for your time uh, dan wolf is the chief psychologist and director at heart and house addiction and mental health treatment centers if you or a loved one are suffering from an addiction which has you bound where you feel that you can't move on, that you are completely dependent on it, that it is really, it's bringing your personal relationships to a halt or it's having an impact on your life that really it has no business having an impact on, then I urge you to speak to your doctor, speak to a professional, speak to somebody like Dan uh, from a treatment center and get yourself free. From myself, Kathy Kayla, thank you so much. Thank you for everybody who sent through messages. Unfortunately, I didn't get to um, read all of them. But really, thank you. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Stay off drugs. And I'll be back on Monday. God bless. Bye-bye.